Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. And, and The Naked Scientist is brought to you by The Rand Show. It's showtime. I can't believe we're two weeks away from a live interaction with The Naked Scientist. Chris, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Now, Chris, let's start here. Should we start imagining a post-antibiotic world? Uh, Potentially, because the chief medical officer of the UK, Dame Sally Davies, says that the threat from antibiotic resistance is actually on par with the threat from terrorism. And having heard the news that we've had in recent weeks, that's quite a claim. Mm. But the point is that because of the way that we're using antibiotics and because of the way that that bugs are becoming resistant to antibiotics... We're facing a time when in perhaps 20 years' time, nothing's going to work anymore. And we have strains of tuberculosis, which are very hard, if not impossible, to treat. We've got what actually are fairly common mundane infections in hospitals now, which are very hard to treat. So scientists are very much worried about it, but they're also being ingenious. And so now there are various strategies in place to try to come up with new ways to make antibiotics, which previously we couldn't. And there was quite an interesting story in the last month or so, where researchers in the States have come up with a way to grow the ungrowable, because the vast majority of our antibiotic drugs come from bacteria that live in the soil and the problem is that we can only grow about one percent of the bacteria that live in the soil to therefore find out what antibiotics they might be capable of making mm-hmm. but now this group have come up with a way of making the bugs that we couldn't grow before actually grow and they do it by taking soil samples filtering out individual bacteria from them and then putting them in a special nutrient growth medium uh, encased inside a sort of membrane that allows chemicals to pass through but not bacteria and you embed that back in the soil environment and this fools the bacteria into thinking they're still in the soil so they grow then you can take them out of this system and and culture them in the laboratory and they're finding new kinds of antibiotic molecules already via this route. Mm, Very fascinating indeed and Chris a question then about how do antibiotics actually work? Oh there's a whole range of different ways of doing this they target a range of different functions in the bacteria. They either function, uh, they either target the wall of the bacteria and they cause the bugs to burst. They, f- they attack the genetic material of the microorganism, stopping them being able to copy their DNA, so they burst. Or they target the way in which the bacteria make stuff. Excuse me a second. <clears throat> The bacteria have uh, small machines called ribosomes which basically turn the recipes in DNA into proteins that do important jobs and functions in the cells and some classes of antibiotics clog up that system. There are other classes of antibiotics now coming along as well that release various chemicals from the surface of the bacterial cell uh, which then go to other bacteria and persuade them to kill themselves. So those are the usual or the, the main headline ways in which these drugs work. 
Mm, thank you very much, uh, Chris. I have a fascinating question here, and I understand why it's being asked now. We've had a lot of heavy storms in uh, in, in, in the Gauteng area and uh, thunderstorms and lightning. Here's a question from Emmanuel. What is a thunderstorm, and what is the big noise uh, that it makes? What is the relationship as well between a thunderstorm and lightning? Well, the statistic is that right now, right around the world, there are something like 2,000 thunderstorms going off. And each of those lightning bolts is unleashing a huge amount of energy, anything up to 10 billion joules of energy. Uh, To put that another way, it's enough to make a couple of hundred thousand pieces of toast. So it's a very, very large discharge of energy all at once. And when this lightning, which is an accumulation of charges in a cloud above the Earth's surface, comes down through the air, it does so in a tiny column of air, which is only about the size of a small coin. And the discharge, which takes fractions of a second, unleashes all that energy down through that uh, tiny thread of air, and it heats the air to an extremely high temperature. We think something like 30,000 degrees C. When you heat a gas to that amount, and to put that in perspective, it's about five or six times hotter than the sun's surface, it causes the gas to expand. If the gas particles are trying to expand faster than the gas can actually get out of the way, then you get a shock wave, and that shock wave is the thunder. But because light travels very quickly and sound travels much more slowly, you see the flash of lightning, but then the sound from the shockwave only catches up later. And that's why there's a delay. And if you count how long the delay is, it goes at roughly a mile or two a second. Therefore, you can work out roughly how far away the storm is. Okay, thank you very much. And our lines are open for you on 021-446-0567-011-883-0702. Satisfy your curiosity about uh, the body, about uh, the the laws of science. This is your chance. Renelwe in Randburg. Hi. Hi, how are you? Fine. Welcome, Renelwe. Your question? Uh, doctor, I just want to know, for couples with a mixed status relationship, how come is the other couple not infected? Okay, a, a couple, one is HIV positive, unprotected, yeah. set for 10 years, but the other one, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah. Chris? Well, this uh, is um, being picked up as an occasional phenomenon. Some people are resistant to HIV, and there's a number of reasons why people may be resistant to HIV. One reason is a genetic one, and it's less common in people in Africa, but much more common in people in Europe, and we think this is because of various other things that have happened in Europe historically, over the last X number of hundred years, people there carry a genetic change called CCR5 Delta 32. This is the removal of 32 base pairs or genetic letters from the DNA, which encodes a structure called CCR5, which HIV needs to get into cells in our immune system. And people who have this mutation change in their DNA, which is carried by uh, a fair proportion, maybe 10% or so of people, and therefore about 1% of people have two copies of this mutation. In other words, all of their cells have the change in them. Um, Then those individuals are really difficult, if not impossible, to infect with HIV. So if you've got two people living together, and one's uh, HIV positive, and the other one has this genetic change, then it's very unlikely that the person will pass on the genetic change. The other reason why people might not catch HIV off each other is that if they're practicing safe sex, which is the best way not to catch HIV, and they're not exchanging body fluids, as in blood, because HIV transmits in blood, this 
also means that there's a high likelihood they're not going to get HIV. And then there are some other ways in which people can protect themselves. Uh, one way which is being advocated by the World Health Organization is circumcision. Because if males are circumcised, it's much harder for them to catch HIV from a female partner because you have reduced the surface area and the places where the virus can get into the body. And so this can reduce the risk of catching it by 60 to 80 percent. So there are all these factors that might play a role. Thank you so much, Renele, for your question. And uh, we're going to Christine in Centurion. Good morning. Uh, good day. Um, I'd like to know if a mother at any time has had tick bite fever. Could she pass that in her blood to a baby when it's born? Uh, tick bite fever is a bizarrely named microorganism. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's, I think it, sound, it sounds a bit like a streptococcus, but <laughs> the evidence is that this is probably not going to go across the placenta. I don't think, although, you're, although it'll make you systemically unwell, I don't think that one goes across the placenta into the baby, but I would need to check. We were only talking about this the other day because we had a patient who had some very bizarre symptoms which could have been reminiscent of tick bite fever. I think in the end they, they had something much more mundane. Um, but I will check whether or not it can cross the placenta, but my instinct is that I don't think it can. Well, the baby has tick bite fever, but I mean, it's never had a tick on it. It's never been bitten. Well, in that case, there's one possibility is that it has gone across the placenta. The other possibility is that the baby is infected at some other point because the other uh, thing to bear in mind is that vertical transmission going from a mother to a baby doesn't just have to go across the placenta. It could also occur when the baby comes into contact with the mother's body fluids when the baby's being born. And either of those two might account for the transmission, and that's what I'd like to check. Thank you so much, uh, Christine and Centurion. We're taking a break. We'll be back with more of your calls. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Thank you very much. And uh, is it Me- uh, Megan? Megan in Midrand. Good morning. Yes, that's correct. Hi, Reedy. Um, Chris, I've got a question for you. Um, just in regards to omega-3 supplements for children, um, the research that I've been picking up says that the ratio of the EPA to DHA is important. Um can you clarify this and what the ratio should be and also the recommended dose for children? Good morning. Well, we're, we're not really sure um, because people have done a range of different tests and some studies have suggested that children who are supplemented with these um, fatty acids actually can develop a, a better brain performance, they can develop an re- improvement in their reading age and so on. Other studies have found that the effect is less pronounced. I don't think any studies have actually gone and said, let's do a proper trial where we give different individuals different doses and then work out what the impact is reproducibly, if any, on their brain power, cognition, health and so on. So I can't really give you an evidence-based answer to your question. The the omega-3 fatty acids are better than omega-6 fatty acids, but in terms of how much they're better and what sorts of things are going to impact on, I can't tell you. And I don't think anyone has actually at this stage done that proper trial, which would involve taking a very large group of people from different backgrounds, very diverse group in the population, and giving them different doses or different ratios of these things, and then actually measuring the outcome, but without anyone knowing what doses anyone was giving. That's a blind trial and then actually working out which was the best. I don't think it's been subject to that level of scrutiny, but if anyone knows better, do of course tell me. Thank you very much. Okay, is it Tsepo in Moraleta Park? Good morning. Oh, Sridi, how are you? Fine, Tsepo, your question? My quick question is this. I'd like to understand the impact that the drug 
called tick can it have in, in, in one individual? I'm simply asking the question because uh, it, it was recently found in uh, in, in, in one of uh, in Comrade Musimaiman's uh, church, and I don't know if they were taking it to to revitalize their energies uh, to, during the congregation. And if that is, that is the case, could could uh, the gentleman uh, tell us uh, how much of an impact it, the drug tick has uh, in the church? Thank you. Um, okay, let me give you the background story, uh, uh, Chris. So crystal meth, that's what it's called, right? Tech. Crystal meth was found at a church of uh, a politician uh, who is prominent and the leader of the opposition party in uh, parliament. I understood Sepo initially to mean what impact would this drug have on anyone's uh, brain, but uh, he's bringing in the current affairs aspect of the fact that it was found in a church. Could there be other uses for it that the church uh, uh, would, would probably uh, yeah, benefit from? Something like that. Yeah. Crystal meth is a member of the amphetamine class of agents. These all work on a part of the brain which releases the nerve transmitter chemical serotonin or 5-hydroxytryptamine. This chemical is linked to sensations of feeling good, being in a good mood, well-being and energy. And other drugs that target this same brain system include ecstasy and other members of the amphetamines family. And so therefore it shares many of its, many of its behavioural effects with those agents. And some of these drugs do have therapeutic benefits, as in if you have people who have certain conditions, you can make them better by using these agents. But for general members of the population who don't have anything wrong with them, these drugs are destructive and they can cause all kinds of problems. And I don't think there's any place for them being used therapeutically in members of a church community who are otherwise fit and well. Okay. And uh, who came in first? Patrick in no no it was not Patrick in Kylie Joaquin sorry about that um, it was uh, Irene in Parktown hi hi I just wanted to find out I've heard somewhere that um, alarm clocks can't actually snooze ten minutes so I tested it with some of my housemates and my iPhone snoozes at eight minutes and fifty nine seconds whereas his Samsung snoozes for full ten minutes apparently it's there's, there's something to do with the math that alarm clocks can't actually um, I don't know if it's maybe a binary thing, but they can't use a full 10 minutes. Okay. <laughs> well, computers can count to 10 without too much problem. So I'd be very surprised yeah. if, if, if uh, the clever people, because if, the, if, the, if it can time 10 minutes on the front of the clock, it can certainly count to 10 minutes. So I'd be very, yeah. very surprised if, it can't, if it's beyond the ken of somebody to come up with a chip that would just do a 10-minute snooze. And I suspect it's just a legacy effect of because people have done it one way, they've always done it that way, so they carry on doing it that way. But I think you should start a, com- a campaign for the 10-minute snooze button. <laughs> I will be at the top of the petition. I will sign up. Just send me the petition. <laughs> Thank you very much, Irene. Thank you. And uh, it is Chris in Cape Town. Hi. Hi, really. Hi, Chris. Um, I would like to know, I noticed when you make a cup of hot chocolate, and you stir it, and then you take your teaspoon, and you tap the top edge of the cup. The pitch or the musical note starts off quite deep, and as you tap, it becomes higher and higher and higher in its frequency until it almost sort of stops. But I've never noticed that with tea or coffee or any other hot beverage. Any ideas why it would do that with hot hot coffee? 
Uh, uh, hot chocolate. Yeah, I've got mm. an idea, which is that, and just to revise this, so what we're doing is we're putting the stuff into the bottom of the cup, we pour in the hot water, and then we stir it, and as you stir with the spoon, then the note changes. Why does the note change? Well, one explanation for this, and you can try this yourself if you, if you get some Alka-Seltzer or something in a glass, because it's fizzy, and you can actually see what's going on. As you stir the hot chocolate, you are making bubbles, and when you make bubbles go into the liquid, the bubbles have an effect on the frequency of sounds which will resonate in the cup. When the spoon hits the side of the cup, it makes it vibrate. High-pitched vibrations and low-pitched vibrations will be of different wavelengths and will interact with the bubbles in the liquid in a different way. And if you've got lots of bubbles sitting there, the bubbles will make the liquid in the cup a much less stiff medium. It will be much uh, saggier. And this means that high frequencies won't travel so well through it, but low frequencies will. And so as you come up the cup away from the froth, then the frequency will change because the, f the proportion of bubbles in the liquid will change, and therefore the frequency of, of w which is being affected will, will change. And that's why you see that effect. It's to do with the bubbles soaking up or making the liquid much less stiff and rigid, so therefore lower frequencies propagate more easily than higher ones. I'm going to try that today. Thank you so much. And uh, is it I Ivana in Sandringham? Good morning. Hello. Hello, Ivana. Hello. Hello. So my question is, um, why is it that when you make a salad and add avocado, um, when you put the avocado pip into the salad, it seems to prevent the avo going brown um, as quick as it normally would without the pip in the salad. Okay. There, there's a chemical reaction which is happening which is the, causing the oxidation. In other words, the reaction between oxygen and certain chemicals. They're organic molecules which are in the flesh of the avocado. I think it's similar to the reason that fungi, things like mushrooms, will go a brownie black colour once you've cut through them. Why the stone yeah. should make a difference, I don't know. I've never done the experiment, but one possibility is that uh, we're mistaken and the stone doesn't do any such thing. It's just that we think it does. It's a coincidence. Sometimes we've looked at the salad and seen the stone there and it hasn't been brown and we've concluded it makes a difference. That's one possibility. Another possibility is that there is something coating the stone of the avocado which is suppressing the activity of those enzymes uh, th and therefore you take the stone away and it happens i don't know is the answer but certainly it's a, an oxidation reaction that occurs between oxygen in the air and materials organic molecules in the flesh of the avocado which are acted on by enzymes and these enzymes once you break into or cut open the avocado and you break open the flesh you release those enzymes and they begin to act on the flesh to produce that oxidation reaction. Shall we go to Patrick and Kailicha? Good morning. Yeah, morning, uh, 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 Rudy and the naked scientist. Mm, good morning. Yeah, it's always about cattle, but now this is not about the mad cow disease. It's about now the mad, the mad cattle madness in the sight of uh, carcass. Uh, I grew up looking at uh, herding cattle. Then when you immediately you come to a, a site where there was a carcass of another one, even if it's no longer there, you don't even know about it, they start a strange behavior, um, bellowing and all that kind of thing. They can even uh, and, uh, they, they, you know, uh, hurt you. Then you have to back off. I, I want to know, is there a scientific explanation? Oh, is what, that Why so? they do that? And then the second question to that, 
Uh, is, okay, is, is, we don't have time for a second question, Patrick. I'm very sorry. Lots of people holding on. Let's deal with this one. <laughs> and then maybe next time you can phone us with the second one. Um, so, Chris... What an interesting yes, phenomenon. And animals are very, very tuned into their environment. If you think about it, then they live and die by their ability to sense danger because in the, in the wild and certainly in, in the African savanna, if you're not careful, you turn into somebody's lunch pretty quickly. Therefore, animals are tuned in to, to signals from their environment that tell them that danger is afoot. When something dies, then a whole range of different things happen. Obviously, there's the visual stimulus. Animals can tell a dead animal from a live one. There are also subtle smells that come about and sounds because there may be flies buzzing. There may be odours. And animals are innately sensitive to these stimuli. They know that they signal danger. They know that this could mean that danger is still present and therefore they need to be cautious because they may become lunch next and therefore they make noises and they become alarmed mm. because by doing so they're telling all of the other animals because these are herd animals, they live in big groups and if all of the animals are alarmed, they, their level of awareness and alarm and therefore secure, sort of scrutiny of the environment increases so that everyone's looking out for danger. Okay, somebody wants to know on SMS, what is the material inside a battery uh, that gives it power to fire up other appliances? Okay, well, a battery is a chemical reaction. And batteries come in a whole range of different flavors. Don't put them in your mouth. I'm using that metaphorically. They, <laughs> they range from simple chemical reactions like alkaline cells right through to lithium batteries, which put out very high currents to run things like laptops. But the bottom line is that the science is the same as Alessandro Volta discovered several hundred years ago. And that is that you have two different metals or two different sources of, of metals which have different reactivities. And when you couple them together with a chemical between them called an electrolyte, which can al allow charge to flow between the two metals, one metal will dissolve and send ions of that metal to the other metal. And if you have separated them with, Volta did it with pieces of soggy cardboard, but batteries these days tend to use other kinds of barriers between the two surfaces, then if you tap off the charge, you can actually send the electricity around a circuit from the top of the battery to the bottom and therefore get some useful work out of the chemical reaction as it happens. Thank you very much. Okay. And then uh, there is an SMS here about sunlight. Can sunlight be compressed like, is it IPG? I don't know. Does that make Liquid sense? Liquid petroleum gas LPG. Oh, okay. Well, not really. Um, I mean, sunlight is a stream of particles called photons which behave sometimes as those stream of particles as Einstein showed that when they interact with a metal they can knock electrons out of the metal and produce a current that's a photoelectric effect they also behave like waves because as Thomas Young showed when you shine light at a surface if you've got holes cut in a surface two slits then you get a, an interference pattern behind the slits which can only be produced if light is behaving as a wave that wave or stream of particles arrive at the speed of light so that's three times 10 to the 8 meters per second 300 million meters every second that those particles are traveling but once they interact with the surface they are then absorbed into that surface and they make the electrons in that surface vibrate and the electrons then either re-emit new photons of light or they they actually soak up the energy and turn it into heat which then comes out as infrared light we don't think that you can bottle light in the way that you can bottle gas, unfortunately. Chris, have a lovely, lovely weekend. We'll see you again next week. 
We'll see you in, in, uh, in person in two weeks' time. We're really looking forward to it. We are very, very excited indeed. Thank you. And uh, again, our listeners, we're going to be giving you information. It's, it's happened before. You come through to Prime Media, you have to book your seat, and uh, you can have a live uh, interaction with the naked scientists and ask uh, and watch some very uh, interesting experiments, which I've never tried, by the way. I've never tried any of them at home. Uh, maybe this year I'll be brave and uh, I may just do that. So that's it. And we are going to podcast the segment for you. Oh, Thomas, you want me to read this? Okay, I start like this. Ever wondered why you close your eyes when you sneeze? Find out the science behind this and more at the Rand Show this April as the naked scientist Chris Smith unpacks the world of physics at South Africa's largest, and it is the largest, consumer exhibition. The Rand Show opens from Friday the 3rd until Sunday the 12th of April with lots of fun activities for you and your family. Loved the Rand Show when I was a child. Don't miss the naked scientist at the Rand Show from the 3rd to the 6th of April at the Joburg Expo Center, Nasdaq. Tickets are available. Uh, get in there early. Buy them now uh, at CompuTicket or at the gate. Gates open from 9 a.m. The Rent Show, it's showtime. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.